The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel are Father Joseph Sund. Hi, Father Joseph. Happy 30th birthday to Windows (laughs) 3.1. Yay, let's blow out the candles. And Victor Lambs. Hey, Victor. Hey, Dom. Folks, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy, one that Victor is on. It's called The Secrets of Stargate. That's right, The Secrets of Stargate, where you travel throughout the galaxy, having fun, cracking jokes in the distinctly 1990s style. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash stargate. So let's talk about today's show. Uh, we uh, let's see, the PC Magazine had an article recently, the biggest software flops of all time. And this is sort of, you know, fun article where you get to relive all of the the pain that you suffered having to endure these flops when they were on your actual computer. But being able to look back and go, oh, man, those are the bad days, uh, you know, securing the notion that those things are long gone. And so we th- got to thinking that how about we do a list of our biggest tech flops of all time that we think about, both hardware and software. Uh, you know, and, if, and I want to sort of lay a little bit of a ground rule of like, what do we mean by a flop? It's not that it it, it was dis- that you disliked it. You know, that doesn't make a, something a flop. It means it failed as a product. It launched. Or didn't maybe, or it was it was uh, promised, and ne- you know never came about, or you know they big promises, not much delivery, or it came out and it just failed against its competitors, or failed in the marketplace, something along those lines. Or it was you know if it was software it was full of bugs and just never got anywhere. Products that probably you know may- might not have uh, maybe shouldn't have ever seen the light of day. Products that make you go, what were you thinking? Or products are like, wow, this is going to be great. And then it comes out and for some reason, it just doesn't catch fire. Maybe it was too early. The technology wasn't quite there for the idea. And if it had come in another time, it would have been more successful. Or there was just a competitor that just beat them. Maybe they didn't have a better product, but better marketing or better mind share or whatever. And and this product flopped. So we're going to kind of have a little fun with it and talk about some of our uh our favorites <laughs> you might say from this and so uh let's start uh, talking about maybe some hardware uh victor what what do you, would you pick as your first big tech flop of all time yeah so most of the you know hardware you know technology purchases i made uh have have been you know video game consoles and so there there's a number of those that haven't lived up to expectations um you know the nintendo virtual boy which was supposed to be the big follow-up to the Game Boy, kind of stands out as one. Um, it was a case of, you know, Nintendo being sold on a technology, which was this, you know, portable, you know, 3D stereoscopic uh, screen. Unfortunately, it could only do, you know, like four shades of red 
uh, in colors. And, uh, you know, it had to be worn as goggles. Nintendo was concerned that, you know, if people were playing with this in the car, you know, and there was an accident, these goggles could could cause injuries. So they had to make it on a table mounted display, which which limited you had to kind of like sit at the edge of a table with your face up against this display to play the games. So, you know, not. It, you know, kind of a kind of a cool technology that unfortunately, you know, didn't translate into a very good consumer product. And I think you find that a lot with these, you know, technology flops is that, you know, the people who created it had really good ideas, really good intentions. But, you know, by the time it had to make it through, you know, the the you know, their office of general counsel and the lawyers and the marketing people at some point with I think all of these we will see that, you know, this really good, you know, germ of an idea kind of uh, when it finally came out the other end, uh, didn't didn't look so pretty. Again, I think it's one of those things that was ahead of its time a little bit in the sense of the technology to do virtual reality just wasn't there in the mid 90s. You know, it was, uh, it, you know, you could see the the germ of the Oculus and the, you know, the other headsets mm-hmm. that are out there now. But uh, yeah, it, it just it was a, it was a, it, it was exciting in concept, but not in execution. Yeah. And there are some very good on the web. You can find some very good oral histories of the virtual boy and kind of read more. You know, if you have a couple of hours to read through these articles of, of kind of where it went off the rails. And I think we'll probably see that with a lot of these flops, too, is is that, you know, there are probably some interesting stories to tell uh, behind all of them. Right. Right. Father, what is, what's your first hardware pick? Um, my first hardware pick is one that was so bad that at one point I saw it come up on eBay, um, and I think I paid about 20 bucks for a product that once was a few hundred dollars on eBay. Um, and it was the Compaq PC Companion C140. Um, and this thing... Um, Basically, I think anything that was handheld that ran Windows CE could probably make our list. <laughs> um, right. Windows CE was – the nice way to put it is was ahead of its time. Um, <laughs> they were trying to do a full-fledged computer without doing a full-fledged computer. Um, the version of Office it ran – um, would save its Word and Excel documents in a format that you couldn't actually open on the regular Word and um, Excel without a, another special piece of software in between it. Um, and then, you know, v- Victor would get this playing Game Boy a lot, you know. Yeah. Imagine trying to type type on a screen that you get that nighttime Game Boy problem on the original Game Boy, right? So the there's one LED that you can turn on in the back of it to try to make up for it. Doesn't do much. So let's just des- let's describe what it looks like. It it looks like a little laptop. It's a little clamshell device. You flip it open and it's got the old green L- LCD screen and it's got a tiny little chiclet keyboard. It had a stylus, right? I think it had a stylus. For it did a, have a stylus, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I'm guessing it was uh, not a very good experience of writing on the screen. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and like you said, there's a backlight, but the backlight you said was, it was the kind where the light is at the bottom and shines <laughs> up. Yeah, yeah it, it seems like it's just a single, like they might have put a couple uh, diode LEDs in there and just shine them Which up. Which is... 
still more than the original Game Boy Advance have had, and that was a very popular system. The but yeah, but the I, wor- I think the the worst feature of it is the keyboard. Yeah, the keyboard leaves um, a lot to yeah. be desired. Um, and remember, the touchscreen at that time is still the membrane touchscreens. Right, not responsive. Yeah, I mean it's easy to 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 knock like Windows CE now, but it's kind of if if there was no Windows CE, would we really have kind of like the smart device revolution that we're seeing? Because it was kind of the first mainstream jump into embedded computing. I mean, they even put Windows CE on the Sega Dreamcast. You know, not very many games used it, but it was Windows attempt to like, this is going to be, you know, the version of Windows that's running on, you know, washing machines and, you know, sprinkler systems, industrial control systems, and, and even, uh, you know, third tier like would you call it a not even a netbook you know more of just like a right like, like those old casio devices that could you know uh, keep track of your contacts or something back in the 80s well and then the the one thing that i'll praise of it it has a full-size pcmcia card which if you remember your old computers mm-hmm. that you'd have that PC expansion card you'd be able to add in. So this was back if you wanted to add a 56K modem to something or a LAN connector or um, this one. Whoa, I don't whoa, think got 56K. What are we, Rockefellers here? <laughs> <laughs> no, we can't afford 56K dial-up. No, we're selling that 28.8. So the... And then what I had used it for is I used it for an expansion card that I was able to put a CF card in it, right? Mm-hmm. To put a compact flash nice, and expand yeah. the memory um, to a whole womp in 16 megabytes. Wow. But like you say, Victor, without Microsoft CE and the compact C140, we might not have have had the Palm Pilot, you know, uh, today mm-hmm. as because it was the contrast to it. And that really was a, the predecessor and we really could trace the smartphone as we know it today almost to the palm pilot in that sense because it has the same general form factor all that so and that's an interesting thing about these these flops is they often are the the flop that that is followed by a success you can almost connect it to something that succeeded later so uh yeah so that's a good one uh what's uh let's see maybe i'll mention my first one here uh which kind of fits the same bill and that would be the apple lisa uh, this was a computer that Apple com- came out with in between the Apple II and the Mac, and this was uh, this was going to be its um, desktop computer for business. This is a serious machine. You know, the Apple II was for schools and families. You know, it was used in some businesses, but this was a machine built to be a business machine, and it wasn't cheap. It was. Ten thousand uh, dollars when it came out in 1983, yeah. uh, which in 2020 dollars, uh, you know, uh, after government caused inflation, as Jimmy Aiken likes to say, uh, it would be like twenty five thousand dollars today to buy this computer. Like you think Mac Studios and Mac Pros are expensive, and uh, but it just it didn't work well. The operating system, which was a graphical user interface, it was the you know. B- the first one before the Mac, it was sluggish. Um, it the the programs didn't work very well. Uh, it just it it just was a flop right out of the uh, out of the gate. And in fact, uh, this was the project that got Steve Jobs thrown out of his own company by the board of directors. Uh, so uh, um, 
this is the yeah the big the the one. Uh, I mean the the Mac was really his baby, but he was already out the, going out the door. But by the time the Mac came out, but um, yeah, I remember there's a story that, and I don't know if it's true or not, that there's like a landfill in Utah filled with like filled with Apple leases that they'd buried to just get rid of them because they couldn't sell them. Uh, or maybe that's the like uh, right next to the video game that they buried too. What was the video that was game? the ET game? I think. Oh, okay, cool. that uh, there yeah, were coming yeah, attractions. Okay. <laughs> yeah, coming attractions. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. The the Lisa was a flop, and all I can say is that's probably why Xerox Park Laboratories didn't bring it out themselves, and instead let uh, let uh, Trip Hawkins and and Steve Jobs like blatantly copy right everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and actually there's there's a there's a, a really good um historian of like, you know, early computers and computer games called the Digital Ant- Antiquarian and he's done a very good um kind of history of the Lisa, so we can put that in the show notes uh, oh, good. as well. Yeah, let's throw the yeah. throw that link in there. That should be good. I wonder how much those are running on eBay now. More oh. or less than its original price. Well, they only sold ten thousand. Well, I'm gonna guess less than the original price. Less than even the 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 nine thousand something original price, it's my guess. Um, but they only sold ten thousand in two years, so, which is not very many mm-hmm. even by the standards of the day. So, um, yeah, that, that certainly qualifies as a flop. Um, all right, so we that we come back around. Uh, Victor, do, uh, do you want to pick a uh, software flop that uh, you want to fondly remember? Yeah, so I think I've blocked out most of you know the bad software that I've used and only remember the highlights. Um, you know, I, I do music production, so there's a lot of really bad, you know, music software and hardware that I've used over the years. But um, I, I had a bad experience actually with iOS version 11 dot something or other where, um, you know, it, it, it tend to drain my battery very quickly and turn my Apple iPhone into a, um, you know, portable pocket heater. <laughs> to the point where I got very concerned about it. And this was right around the time, to be fair, that Samsung, I think, was having uh, the problems with their Galaxy S8 kind of, uh, you know, uh, turning into incendiary devices. So um, it was at that point I've, I moved to, to Android, um, you know, probably about uh, six years ago. So, um, yeah, that one that one stands out because it's the first time I've ever kind of rage quit is a, you know, is, is a, when you, when you're playing a game and losing and you get upset, you, you kind of just like turn off the game or, or, you know, throw the, the controller down. That's, yeah. Yeah. And that's where I kind of threw my iPhone down and, and switched to Android. So that one, that one stands out in my mind as one that had kind of a material effect on, you know, I'm changing, you know, ecosystems here. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's bad software and that's why, you know, you never, you never invest too heavily into software because um, not so much that software is bad, but, you know, a lot of the software I use is, is you know, very small development teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's always a question of, you know, will these people be in business, you know, six months or six years from now? So, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's probably other other things, but, uh, you know, that one stands out. How about you, father? What do you what's your pick for a bad uh, okay, bit of software? My bad software pick, I think, is probably the poster boy of bad software. <laughs> um, it's, and it begins with the naming of it. It was called Microsoft Bob. Um, and Microsoft Bob was a cartoon interface 
that was designed to make Windows 3.1, the greatest operating system that Microsoft ever made, um, to make that more usable. So this was a predecessor to Windows 95. Okay. Um, and it was a cartoon interface. It was kind of like a living room that you set up. Um, and in a cartoon way, they had icons sitting around that you would click on to open things. Um, so you'd have your address book sitting on a table. Um, you'd have your calendar up on the wall that you'd click on to open your calendar. Um, a to-do list. Um, all those little things. Um, and then you had a little dog that was your friend. Um, and he was your virtual assistant. Um, and if we want to talk about things that would have never been possible without these flops, our great friend Clippy on Microsoft Word <laughs> Infamous <in> Office <laughs> would yeah. have never been possible without Microsoft Bob. Um, and so we can thank this flop and this fail for Clippy. <laughs> Although you can point to the fact that like kids today can't, don't know how to write a letter or a resume. No <laughs> Clippy. <laughs> Clippy informed an entire generation on how to write letters and uh, whether <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't see know. <laughs> that you're trying to write a letter here. Do you need yeah. some help? That's good. That's good. Thanks, Clippy. No, I mean, it. Microsoft Bob is an interesting case. It's like most of these flops very much of its time. Uh, you mentioned 1995, you know, Mist had the game Mist in 1993 had brought a whole new, you know, audience to computers. CD-ROMs were popping up. People bought computers because they thought they were going to be multimedia devices. You know, they didn't know DOS. They wanted, um, you know, I guess it's a skeuomorphic, you know, type interface where, you know, a calendar looks like a calendar, an address book likes, looks like an address book. And, and um you can kind of see how at various times we've we've come back to this too, where, you know, mm -hmm. in virtual reality, you know, I don't know if it's this way today, but like you you look at like your Rolodex or whatever, and that's your contacts list or something. Um, but yeah, very much of its time, you know, probably a, a really good idea. But, uh, you know, anybody who would have used a Microsoft product probably didn't have time for it. Well, remember the original iOS, that's what made it so great. Right. You had the notepad that looked like a notepad on that original iPhone. The last thing that came out of this that we can't forget, the font Comic Sans was created for Microsoft Bob. Microsoft Bob has a lot to answer for. Let's just say that. Don't, don't blame the font for how it gets used. That's all I could say. Because a generation of public school teachers and uh, church uh, secretaries found it on their computer and thought, oh, that looks fun. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very it's hip with the kids. So uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me talk about one. So the mid 90s was a was a uh, tough time for for Apple. Let's just say that until 1997. Um, we had the aborted attempt to create a whole new operating system. Uh, Apple Copeland was the one. It was just they, they just worked and worked and worked. They could never get anywhere with it. And that could qualify as one of the flops. But I'm going to go. uh with something that's semi-related, which was OpenDoc. And this was a concept that Apple came up with for modular software so that it was always, I think part of the problem with it was, it was always tough to explain. Like, I want a word processor. What do I, like, just, it was a document, instead of 
um, working within like from software application to software application, going from Word to Excel to PowerPoint. We people, you know, the idea was people work on projects. I have this report I have to do. So it was document, a document focused uh, uh, idea. And so you'd open a document and you would in, put in a word processing module and then you put in an Excel module. And in fact, that's a lot like how uh, um, I work from Apple works today. In, if I have a pages document open, I can drop a spreadsheet into it from numbers, you know? So it was there in concept, but it just, again, ahead of its time. It didn't work. It was slow. It was buggy. Although there was the browser that they offered called CyberDog. And I liked CyberDog. It was a good, it was a decent browser. It wasn't the best, but you know, we didn't have much to work with back then. We had uh, Explo- Internet Explorer and Netscape. And I think that was that it. That was about it. That was about it. And yeah. Did they have a little cartoon dog that would say, it looks like you're trying to write a letter? No. Because that, I think, would <laughs> no, have, that no. would have made it, yeah. Uh, Gruff, you're trying to surf the web. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was McGruff. The losers are losers, kid. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, that would have made it even better. But <laughs> it's it was a flop, but I wish it wasn't. And, and in fact, in the long run, it wasn't because that's how we work today. Like, I love the idea of contextual computing. My computer should work around the context of what I'm trying to do. So when I'm recording a podcast, only stuff that's related to the podcast should be visible and up. And that's how it should be work, you know, focused around. And so the idea was there. They just couldn't implement it. And that, again, that's a lot of software and hardware at the time. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds a lot like Office 365 today, but it it really isn't. I mean, even today in Office 365, if you try to, like, grab an Excel thing and put it into a PowerPoint or something, which is something I do a lot of it's it's still very clunky and you can tell that it's not yeah. it's not one you know sort of base code with, with different you know front ends on it it's i work is is pretty seamless i mean it is pretty awesome if you want to if you've created a number spreadsheet and you want to just throw it in, in a uh, keynote it works like like nothing it's so good uh but it's just not widely used and that's you know and and it's it, numbers is nowhere near as powerful as excel i mean just it's getting there, but it's nowhere near uh, that. I use numbers for a lot of things in, in pages, but, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff where I, I just use Excel because it's got the, the tool set. So uh, let's move on to our next hardware picks. Uh, Victor, what do you have next for hardware? Um, yeah, so I'm going to have to defer to our uh, Discord server on this, SQPN's new new Discord server, where we're having a lot of really good uh conversations uh there and there was a recommendation from from the uh, the crowd there um oh uh I, I, johnny osprey i think mentioned it uh the atari jaguar another video game system and has the distinction of being the only video game system that i ever actually sold uh, a few years after i after i purchased it it was billed as a 64-bit um, video game system, I think, because probably it had four 16-bit processors in it, or something like that, or a 32-bit, <laughs> some some weird math. But um, yeah, the, it had a, a very weird uh, going way back to the 70s. You know, the Intellivision had a controller with uh, you know 
numerous 16, you know, eight, 24 buttons on it. And then these little membranes that you would put over the you know, little plastic sheets that you would put over the controller that had, you know, game specific controls printed on them. And the Atari Jaguar was, was kind of like that. Um, but, but again, Atari since, you know, it's, it's heyday in the, in the late seventies, early eighties has kind of, um, you know, gone through receivership. Uh, you know, it's been owned by various companies, first Warner brothers and Jack Tremail, uh, you know, bought them out. And so, um, you know, questionable hardware has come out under, under that name for, for a good long time now. And it's just, the games weren't there. The, uh, you know, the, the, the controllers, uh, you know, the, the hardware was very clunky, um, and expensive too. So that I think I sold and, uh, you know, bought a questionable piece of, uh, you know, probably music making hardware with the money at the time, but which I probably have also since sold, but no regrets about selling uh, the, the Jaguar, unfortunately. So very good uh, recommendation from the from from the discord uh, server group there. Well, you can say that you once owned a Jaguar. <laughs> yeah, and I n- never will again. No, no desire to hunt one up on eBay or or anything like that. No. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Nice. How about you, Father? What's your uh, next uh, hardware pick? My next hardware pick um, was something that I bought as a high schooler, um, being poor and not being able to um, afford the real iPod that came out. I think that would have been about my junior year of high school when that. Um, And this was the iPod Shuffle. Um, And it was available on a 512 megabyte and a one gigabyte format. And the biggest, and if you remember, you had the um, commercials that you had the silhouette guy dancing around, and he had a um, the shuffle hanging around his neck on the lanyard that it came with, Um, and so that that was a neat part of it. Um, And all in all, the it was a basically USB thumb drive turned in an MP3 player and. Um, the device itself was fairly well built. Um, after a lot of use, that USB header would come loose and break. Um, but the part that flopped is originally um, you cannot play the AIFF file format, which just so happened to be what every iTunes music was encoded with. Um, and so it had to convert all your files to put it onto this iPod Shuffle, if I remember right. So there was some of the music that Apple sold. Well, the the stuff that Apple iTunes sold was uh, lossless and AIFF. But if you had MP3s, you could just throw them on there, as I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But if you had purchased music on iTunes, yeah, it had to convert your purchased music to get it onto the um, iPod Shuffle. Which nowadays would be pretty easy, but when you had slower computers, this yeah, was it took a long if time. I, yeah. If I have a gigabyte of of music I'm putting on there, it could be a couple hour process sometimes when you're running a 300 megahertz computer. Yep. And this was this was the uh, one without a screen. I think they were selling these up until about four years ago, right? I mean, in various forms. In yeah, various yeah, forms, na- nanos or. In various forms, this was the one that was no screen, and by its name, it would just shuffle your music. So you had no clue what was going to come up. Oh wow! Well, you could play in order. You could you could put it on in order and have it play in order. But yeah, it was designed to just kind of 
just you put a playlist on there and it shuffles. It's like having in some ways it was the modern incarnation of the mixtape. Just a yeah, just a tape of random <laughs> music. I was going to say this in your previous pick, which is that little keyboard that all you can do is basically like pound out text files on. Like this sounds like a hipster's dream, right? I mean, if you're going to write like a novel or a screenplay, something that can only type. And then if you're going to listen to music, something where it's completely random, you know, and, and it's just limited to whatever you put on there. Right. Get, like, me I think, old, get me an old Nokia phone and I'm in heaven. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was I was going to say, I think there's a real, uh, you know, someone needs to bring these bring these things back. Right. I mean. So for my next pick, I'm going to pick something that might be a little. Some people are going to say it's not a flop because you see them everywhere, but I'm going to call it a flop for a specific reason, and that's the Segway. Now, like I said, you see Segways everywhere. Anytime you go to a city, you see tourists, you know, touring around the city in a little, you know, gaggle of Segways, like a bunch of like long neck geese with wheels. And the reason I call it a flop is because this was the most overhyped product. I think I'd ever seen when they were introducing this. Um, you had people, not just the people selling the Segway, you had people like Steve Jobs and and uh, Steve Wozniak and you know all these big tech guys. It's going to change everything. Society itself will be unlike it ever was. It will change how cities work. I mean, this was like you would think that we had just replaced the internal combustion engine. With a ten dollar scooter, like I mean, it was like we would, and it would be just as good. Like, I, I, the, when I look at him, I'm thinking, were they really that deluded, or were they bought off, or why was it so hyped for so little return? Like, I love the fact that it's a self balancing platform that you can ride around on and stuff, but it's essentially a, a motorized scooter. What do you? What do you? Yeah, guys think? I mean, Dean Kamen is a is a heck of a pitchman and. I'm glad that he took some of that Segway money and, you know, started first robotics with it. Yeah. You know, which is which is, uh, you know, a very good, uh, you know, ro robotics competition. Um, but no, I mean, it gets into the whole like like question of urban mobility and, you know, Paul Blart, mall cop jokes aside, you know, the first one at least is a, is a good movie. Um, the you know, the the technology from the Segway, I think, is still being used today and in, in self-balancing and, and, you know, bird scooters, I think, uh, use some aspect of it. So, um, you know, you know, the, the pandemic, which kind of locked down cities, put, you know, a, cr a crimp in that whole kind of urban mobility movement, which was, you know, pushing, you know, internal combustion engine, especially cars out of, uh, you know, urban centers, having more personal mobility through, you know, electric scooters, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that, that dream may still yet come to fruition. Um, and, you know, I think Segway had, had a, had a very integral part. Didn't, didn't like a scooter kill like one of the guys who invented it though, or something like drove him off a cliff or something. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, that I one. That. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, it sounds like, uh, yeah, yeah. So poetic yeah. injustice. Now this, this leads way to the, um, I think on the Segway flop, I think you could also add your um, what were those called? Those hoverboards that set on fire. Oh yeah, the hoverboards. Yeah, those are those are also. I don't flop. think that showed up on our list, but that could de yeah. that definitely qualifies as a flop. So, Victor, what you were referring to was the guy who bought Segway from Dean Kamen in yeah. two thousand nine, the British businessman Jimmy Heseldon. Heseldon. A year later, yeah. in an ironic and unfortunate accident, as Wikipedia says, Heseldon died 
after he plunged into the river wharf while riding a rugged country version of Segway. I mean, oh my gosh, that, talk about that. Yeah, that river is the son of the river Moog, right? So, <laughs> but no, no, yeah, tragic. But I mean, well, a lot of these flops, you know, it's like Einstein said, if I can see further than, or Newton said, if I can see further than, than other men, it's because I've stood on the shoulder of giants, right? Right. In this case, you know, any successful product stands on the shoulder of these, you know, failed, uh, not giants, but, you know, products. And that's the thing is, is it, you know, there's so many of these, they're still out there. Like they're used by police. They're used, you know, they're not just used by tourists, but they're used in all kinds of ways. And there are all kinds of versions of it now. And I know, you know, and they're used in a lot of businesses. So it's hard to say it's a flop. I mean, it's an ongoing concern making a profit, but it's, it was the, in in relation to the original hyped, you know, the projection of, its impact. And I think that's another important way that something could flop is it could still be a commercial success, but if it was so overhyped to begin with and it never lived up to that promise, I think that still qualifies in some ways as a flop. Mm -hmm. Like Ghostbusters (laughs) 2. Yes. (laughs) Decent enough movie, but yeah, not not up to the... Not uh, Ghostbusters 1. All right. So let me talk... Let me just mention a couple other of my uh, honorable mentions. Yeah, uh, you can't talk about hardware flops without talking about Betamax. Uh, it was the there were two video f- cassette formats, videotape formats back in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, VC VHS and Betamax. Betamax was arguably the superior technology, and VHS ate its lunch. <laughs> and that's a that's a tale we get told over and over again. The the better stuff does not always win. Um, it, there are lots of factors. Uh, same thing with the replay TV DVR. Uh, back in the late '90s, there were two TiVo-like products. TiVo is now the a generic name, but they were they're technically called DVRs. And there were two DVRs out there: the Replay TV and the TiVo. And I was torn. I really wanted a Replay TV. Couldn't get one. They were too expensive. I went and got a Sony TiVo, and I loved that thing. It was the it was like back in the days before streaming. Before, you know, this was how you time shifted. Uh, you know, your your TV watching, and it's it, you know what? It saved my sanity after 9-11 in one sense, because I had something like 15 hours of Simpsons episodes saved up on it. <laughs> and after like two straight weeks of the news, just about the the bombing, I needed to take a break. And I watched hours of Simpsons laughing. My, my, my gut sore. Like, and I always remember that fondly, but the replay that TV was before that was before FXX was a station. Cause right. nowadays you could watch 15 yeah. hours of Simpsons, just turning that station on. Well, right. But at the time, like everything was nonstop wall to wall news, all, even the non news stations. It was, it was wild, but, um, but the replay TV, it just, it, it tried different things. It got, went to uh, direct TV. It just never took off. And TiVo became a, like I said, a generic term. I TiVoed that, you know, um, yeah. How do you compete? Yeah, it all comes down to the user experience with with a lot of these products is you can have the the technologically, you know, the best quote unquote product. But if the user experience isn't there and somebody else has cracked that like TiVo did, um, you know, they'll they'll eat your lunch every time. Right. Or the getting the mind share, like getting a term into use that that is just like you TiVo the thing. You know, no one said I replay TV did it. You know, it just became a thing. Uh, another product that uh, flopped uh, on the market, the Microsoft Zune, another one that's a famous uh, hardware flop, uh, which is uh, it had a funny cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2. 
at the end there as uh, this yeah. great new to product from Earth with all the music on it. Sa- sadly, the software on it though was it was not it too was bad. amazing software, but yeah. it was probably better than the Windows Phone software. <laughs> yeah. You you can't out DRM Apple when it comes to digital rights management. You you can't. If you yeah. want to create your own walled garden, you can't create walls that are higher than the ones Apple puts around their own products. So right, right. It's it's open or nothing. We're running a bit uh, long on this segment. I want to kind of wrap things up. Do, any other any other things you want to mention? Like I just have a couple left. I want to mention uh, honorable mention to Google Wave, which was going to be another. This is the future of computing. It turned out to be the predecessor to Google Docs, basically. It was hmm. a kind of Google Docs. Everyone wanted to get in on the beta. It was really hotly sought after. People were paying money for beta invites. I remember that. Um, but it eventually collapsed uh, and then reemerged later as Google Docs and Google Sheets. So that was one. Um, and, and then a, another amusing one from Apple, iTunes Ping. That was its music-focused social network that just was... I don't know what they were thinking because it was they introduced it had no features and it went nowhere like it, like there was no reason to use it ever so uh so those are the ones I wanted to just mention uh, how about father how would you list just list off any others that you had uh okay there? my my top honorable mention is Shaq Fu <laughs> by Electronic Arts and I do own Shaq Fu um this is Mortal Kombat with Shaq Shaquille O'Neal. Um, with Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal. Um, so you can throw basketballs at Charles, Charles Barkley. Um, again, a game ahead of its time. I think now if they made this game and you could play with Shaq oh, and throw basketballs have. at Charles Barkley, is it remade? They have remade it, I believe, yes. Uh, let, me, let me look this up, but I think Shaq Fu 2... Um, I have hours uh, of entertainment. A legend, uh, uh, a legend reborn. <laughs> yes, Shaq Fu Two, a legend reborn. Uh, wow. Came out. Oh gosh, I don't know how long ago. About um, oh four years ago. Okay. Yeah, no, it's and it's yeah, it's it's a fighting game as envisioned by French people who are very passionate about animation and didn't really consider that in a fighting game you want like really tight controls you can interrupt animations in order to you know attack and block and stuff and they were just like no we're so proud of our animation if you make an attack move we're going to show you the whole animation regardless of what it does to the gameplay so different kind of fighting game nice what else father and then i'll throw my last couple in here just quickly um there was a predecessor to google pay that was called isis pay um, and the reason it flopped was not that it was bad software, just that I really don't want to make mobile payments on a piece of software named after a terrorist organization. Um, and so that flopped because of that. Um, and then lastly, we we did tease this one, so we need to say it, um, was E.T. Um, and this was for the Atari. They produced so many of these cartridges um thinking the game was going to be a hit i think it was like five million or something and they all ended up in a landfill pretty much um i probably do own a copy of that one as well um and lastly if you want to see my other picks you can see my post on google (laughs) plus yeah oh google plus well we miss you uh et may be the most infamous game flop of all time it like and the, misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. Howard Scott Warshaw, like like Steven Spielberg had said, I want a video game about E.T. He came to Atari. Atari said, sure, we can get you a video game in six weeks. 
give it to Howard Scott Warshaw, who has since exited the uh, the game industry and become a therapist, I believe, um, you know, gave it his all. And in six weeks came out with the game. But the whole industry was already collapsing by the time, uh, you know, 82, I think it was that E.T. was uh-huh. coming out. And so it was it was a symptom definitely of a, of a larger, uh, you know, sickness and, you know, in the crash, the great crash of uh, 82, 83. So. Right, right. Yeah, mis- misunderstood. Yeah, but uh, but but no less awful as a as a game. So and then the the last of the suggestions from the Discord uh, were Windows Eight, Windows Mobile, the Engage, and uh, oh, no. you, uh, and you mentioned the Atari Jaguar as well. Yeah, they, they mentioned that as well. The Nokia Engage, yes. I think we want to mention we were mentioning this um, before the show. Um, Microsoft ends up there eight times on our list. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but when you're as big as a company that's innovated as much as Microsoft, and you can say the same for Apple, you're going to fail and your fails are going to be visible right. and they're going to be yeah. big. Well, and there's some companies, their failures, they do it behind the doors before they release the product. And some companies like to get stuff out there and they'll, they'll fail. They're okay with failing in the marketplace. It's just a, it's a, it's a philosophy. Um, Apple prefers to fail behind closed doors, they don't always get to do that, I guess. Uh, whereas companies like Google will try 100 things and throw 98 of them away. Um, and that's just the way it is. All right. So we'd love to hear what you think are the best, the biggest tech flops of all time. And you can uh, let us know by sending your suggestions to technology at sqpn.com or join our Discord community at sqpn.com slash Discord. So before we move on to some headlines, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of technology, including Dan S., Robert L., Dion R., Jonathan S., and Bill. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of technology and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So our first headline is from Bloomberg, which says robot truckers could replace 500,000 U.S. U.S. jobs. And uh, it's so the the uh, the story is that there's a lot of a lot of the, the trucking industry, the, the parts of the trucking industry that are long haul, very simple driving, you know, on long highways, boring, straight interstate stretches, that sort of stuff. Um, the the really tricky part of driving is, besides staying awake on the long haul, is is in the local, you know, driving through cities, driving on city streets and that sort of stuff. And that there's this huge shortage of drivers. Now, my brother, my older brother, has been a truck driver for nigh on 40 years at this point. And he knows, you know, and I've gone with him on the road. And he'll tell you, there's a, there are a lot of guys out there who shouldn't be driving, who aren't uh uh, very experienced, who aren't very conscientious about other people around them. Um, according to this article, the American Trucking Association says the industry is short about 61,000 drivers. And the estimate is if even if they just sent out um, truck drivers on long haul gigs uh, in good weather for part of the year, you know, it's just in the optimal conditions, you could still st- save about 10% of human driving of trucks. Uh, so what do you guys think of this story? Uh, would you feel safe on the road around robot trucks, trucks driven autonomously? I don't feel safe around robot driven Teslas. Um, I don't want a semi coming at me driven by a robot right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
and I'll just leave it there. I, um, I think it's, um, would be, it would meet our, um, technology flop list that would be ahead of its time and too much. What do you think, Victor? Yeah. I mean, this is a really, really tricky one here. Um, you know, I think we could get to a point where the technology itself is, is reliable. The question is always going to be the human driven vehicles that are interacting, you know, Today, truck drivers have to deal with, you know, the the cars that zip in front of them and then slam on their brakes. And, right. you know, and you have to anticipate a lot of the reaction time out there. I just don't know who this who this helps exactly. I mean, supposedly we have a shortage of truckers, but, um, you know, it's, it gets into a whole lot of like labor issues and and things that I'm really comfortable, you know, with or really comfortable commenting on. You know, any anything that could, you know, put a lot of people out out of work, you know, I think is is probably not what we need right now. But at the same time, from a technology standpoint, I mean, it would be kind of cool. But if if all we need is is something that with very little human, you know, involvement transports a lot of freight down a straight line, we have that. It's called, you know, rail, it's railroad railroads. <laughs> right. You know, right. put, put the containers on a railroad and, and ship them be, via rail. It's a lot more efficient. You know, nothing's more efficient than a steel wheel on a steel rail. And uh, and you can and, do that uh, stuff by robot now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. As long, yeah. I mean, so why why turn our highways into railroads when we have perfectly good railroads? Right. And the article is a, a bit too rosy about something. I mean, they, they kind of contrast yeah. to say. Uh, lobbyists are seeking to lower the minimum age of for interstate drivers from eight to eighteen from twenty one. So you have a choice. It might be a robot or a teenager. I mean, eighteen is not a teenager. Technically, it is. Eighteen's an adult. Yeah, you know, if you can go just, to Afghanistan and fight in a war. I mean, yeah. you can drive a truck. You, it, eighteen doesn't mean you're irresponsible. So there yeah. was a little of that. Um, I don't. I didn't see like where they got this five hundred like. The, the study says that they could replace about 90% of human driving in U.S. long-haul trucking, the equivalent of roughly 500,000 jobs. But that's, like, really out there. That's really pie in the sky. I mean, they're talking realistically maybe 10%. So maybe, you know, maybe 50,000 of those 61,000 jobs, you know, maybe. But I agree with you that the idea of, like, we need to get better at autonomous driving cars before we have autonomous driving 80,000 pound vehicles, you know, the one thing I like, though, is the idea that a, a truck with with an autonomous system in it could have sensors all around it so that the trucks would not have the blind spots that human drivers have now. I mean, there there's the, there yeah. are massive blind spots around a truck. People, when you drive around trucks, folks, give it a huge wide berth. I mean, he cannot see you as well as you he think you think he can. Um, yeah, too many. I've heard too many stories about bad things happening with that. Um, our next headline is uh, from Vice.com. Meet the secretive U.S. company building an unbreakable internet inside Russia. Now, the 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 gimmick here is is it's not that Russia is building a secret internet. This is they're building a peer to peer network based on these apps that they're designing that the Russian government can't break. Uh, so Russia in the wake of the Ukraine invasion has been locking down its network. It's throwing up what some people call the digital iron curtain, kind of like China's, you know, digital red wall. And they, they, you know, people can't access the social media. 
they can't speak freely in public online. And so Russia, so that there are these apps that are going up in Russia that are peer to peer and secure and encrypted and, you know, anonymizing so that people can exchange information and organize and uh, they won't get found out and that sort of thing. And it's not dependent on the infrastructure allowing it. It works despite that infrastructure. What do you guys think of this? Uh, does it seem like a realistic thing? I say, great. Now do the United States. <laughs> Give us this in the United States, you know, where we're not being monitored, you know, at every turn by uh, by the federal government. No, I mean, you have to look at like who's paying for this. And uh, at least one source of funding that they noted in here is the Open Technology Fund, which is uh, sponsored by the U.S. State Department. Mm-hmm. So um, is this a, uh, you know, CIA, you know, initiative? Is this something that's funded by, you know, the U.S. government to, to you know, prompt uh, you know stability or regime change abroad or something um maybe uh i think it's i think it's a good idea though i think we need one here i think you can actually install it here i mean it's, it's oh, not okay. it's not country dependent so they said they have millions of users around the world and they've got apps for uh, windows android ios mac and ubuntu and um they say that there's no logging no cooperation with with law enforcement. It's uh, end-to-end encrypted with multiple third-party white box audits, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's nothing that says you couldn't use it here. Um, it's so, just- question, if there's if there's a Linux app, um, it brings my question to it that something like this, I would want to see it. Is it open source? Right. Um, am yeah. I able to see the source code of it? Am I able to see what's underneath the hood? Um Right. Especially when we're talking about privacy and monitoring um, and creating an open network, that be something that would be good if it is. I don't know the background on that. I would guess not open source. Uh, this company looks very much either not, you know, not for profit, but is is heavily funded by private interests. Well, then if you're um, and this shows my bias, but if you're hiding your source code, what are you hiding underneath your source code? Um and so I'm not, I'm a little untrustworthy if. Yeah. Well, what, one of the things they say is uh, that the, the, that it does is it's a software application that delivers private, fast, reliable, and secure access to blocked websites and apps. So it's kind of like a VPN, you know, that's, that's the, yeah. that's the, it doesn't exactly explain what it's doing. Uh, it's but, kind of like using a VPN on a peer's machine or something like. Yeah. I don't know. So it's, it's like a peer kind of a peer VPN, basically. Kind of a BitTorrent yeah. based VPN, kind of. I mean, that's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a free version and a pro version. The pro version gives you more data and more sp- better speed and that sort of thing. Um, and it's uh, $32 for a year. So and, and they have their own cryptocurrency. So if you want to. Buy into that uh, multi-level <laughs> marketing scheme. You can do that as well. <laughs> but you know, on the other hand, what anything we could do to to break, you know, the government, any government's ability to yeah. suppress in communication and information, I think it's a good thing. I mean, we got Signal and that's uh, yeah, Signal, Telegram. Yeah. Though I re- I recall one of those two. Which is it? Signal or Telegram that actually is co- cooperates with the Russian government's uh, requirements on some disclosures, which makes it less suitable for the purpose. 
I don't know, so I'm not going to comment. I don't want to throw a company under the bus. It, right, right. I know. Yeah, you, exactly. I've, you could Google it, and, you would, and you'll find out pretty quickly. There is another app out there that's similar called Lockdown. It's another encrypted messaging app. It's from the the guy who does um, Smarter Every Day, the YouTube channel. He's part of the project, mm. and they've been developing it over the last year or so. And I think he's they're intending it to be open source and uh, an open project, but also encrypted. So that's uh, something to check out. I just write my messages on paper and leave them under a rock in the park. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I, I'm old school. I spray print my tweets on the uh, on the underpasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about our last headline, which might be the biggest one of the week. The biggest tech news of the week is Elon Musk uh, bought 10% of Twitter and got appointed to the board of directors after being one of its biggest critics lately. And so it's, I find this very interesting. So Elon Musk is an interesting uh, figure regardless. And he's been having trouble. Uh, let's say he has trouble with Twitter's censorship. It's it's uh, rules, uh, how it uh, shuts down conversation about certain topics. Double standards. Double. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, double standards. Yeah. Uh, um, arb- arbitrary standards might be the. Yeah. Yes, that's another one. So he took a 10%, you know, 9.2% stake in the company, which shocked a lot of people. That's a lot. That is, <laughs> yeah. that is a big uh, chunk. $3 billion, yeah. Yeah. And which is, I mean, even for him, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, then he got, I love how the CEO put it, it became clear to us that he would bring great value to the board. And that's why we appointed him. Yeah. I'm not sure you had much choice yeah. at that point. And, and that's why I'm going to be looking for another job in about a week or two here. Yeah, I in general, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of the world having a world's richest man. But if we have to have a world's richest man, I'm so glad it's Elon Musk. He's like the Scrooge McDuck of like reality. He's like, oh, you want to yeah. fly a rocket to the moon? Yeah, we can do that. You know, you want to look for the lost city of Atlanta? Sure. You know, we, we have you know, we can burrow under the ground and do that or. You know, even even this, it's like, gosh, you know, I really don't like how this this platform is suppressing free speech. I'm going to I'm going to, you know, invest and change it. And very interesting. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with the Babylon Bee, but apparently before he made this move, he he reached out to Seth Dillon, who's the CEO of Babylon Bee. And also, I think, a millionaire or billionaire in his own right, who who made some money in the tech industry and said, is it true that you were banned for for this particular tweet and are still suspended and you can't use your account? And he said, oh, yeah, that's true. He's like, hmm, okay, you know, I might, I might just like buy the company or something, you know. And so he went off, and it's it's interesting to think that like Twitter's kind of petty and pointless suspension, in my opinion, of the Babylon B may have prompted to some small degree Elon Musk making this move, which is going right. to upset their apple cart. But I mean, Twitter, you know, people who live on Twitter don't really appreciate that Twitter is a very small bubble in terms of the rest yes. of the world. But what Twitter does do is it kind of creates that public opinion that the news media amplifies and regurgitates over and over and over again. So um, anything we could do to increase the number of voices on on there that are actually heard and not shut down. I mean, there's major news stories that, that, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post now are coming out and saying are true regarding a certain laptop that Twitter suspended, you know, a newspaper for sharing that, uh, you know, 18 months ago. And forbid users like myself from sharing links uh, to that story and, and even pushed us off the platform. So I'm excited to be coming back to Twitter at some point if, uh, yep. you know, these reforms <laughs> and stuff are are implemented. 
I do love the fact that Elon Musk is, seems to be the sort of guy who says, you know, there needs to be this in the world and then goes and does it. You know, there needs to be uh, affordable, practical electrical vehicles. Okay. There needs to be a, a private company that's carrying stuff into space instead of NASA and is eventually going to go to the moon into Mars. Okay. I mean, you just, you know, there needs to be a, you know, a civilian flamethrower on the market. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's why not? You know, he just goes out and does it. And uh, I love that attitude. It's a, it's a virtue, right? Um, of something needs to happen. I'm going to do it. Right. And I think sometimes we haven't seen that enough in the church. We hear right. a lot of critics saying the church needs to be doing this. The church needs to be doing that. Buddy, you are the church. Go out and do it. Right. You're part of the part of it. So you know, and now I'm the the inevitable response that we might get from some some listeners is, oh, but Elon Musk has said this or said that. That's problematic. And don't do not consider this an uh, unabashed endorsement of everything Elon oh, Musk no. has ever oh, said no. or done. <laughs> no, he's got plenty of problematic views, of course, but. Let's get you know in the current environment. That's supposed to be a disqualifier. It's not. We all have disagreements, but for many of us, there's more areas where we can agree and work together despite our disagreements. And that's what I want to you know to, to applaud here is let's get together despite whatever even very important disagreements we have over very fundamental things. But there are things we can agree on and we can get stuff done. We need to work with people we disagree with. In order to accomplish things, and I think that's one of the things that Elon Musk is showing here by, you know, joining the Twitter board of directors and taking a partial ownership stake in the company. Yeah, I mean, the, the Lord works in mysterious ways. You know, he can use anything for, for in, or anyone for his, his own purpose. And so here you have a South African, you know, businessman created PayPal, now is sending rockets into space, wants to go to Mars in the next couple of years you know, has a beef with Twitter. So just like, you know, gets a seat on the board, right. you know, all this, you know, this, this can all be worked for good, you know, I, I think. So it's, uh, you know, just, just sit back and enjoy the ride, I guess. Yep. Excellent. So those are our headlines this week. Let's move on to our picks of the week. Uh, Father Joseph, you're up first. What is your pick this week? Well, my pick this week um, is put out by the, um, Pine 64 organization, which is the same company that has the um, Linux-based smartphone. But this is a little bit different. It's called the Pine Soul. Um, and what it is, is it's a soldering iron. And the Pine Soul soldering iron here um, is a smart soldering iron, basically. Um, so it has a display on it. Um, and with the display... Um, you can adjust the temperature, um, adjust the voltage, do all this different smart stuff with it. Um, it's an open firmware. So if you want to edit the firmware of it, you can, I guess. I Turn don't know what I would do with it. I don't know what I would do with it. But as I've been using it, one of the useful features is when I lay the soldering iron down, it goes to sleep. It senses that I've laid it down and it stops heating the iron, which is just so neat. Um, yeah, I don't have to worry about burning down a house with my soldering iron or um, so. Um, and you know, it's a I think it was a thirty dollar device or so. 
Oh, wow. That's much cheaper. I have a smart soldering iron, like a, I think it's a TS-80P that, you know, some Chinese, you know, um, 20, factory makes it twenty five ninety nine. Twenty five ninety nine. Yeah, that's much cheaper. Wow. Uh, um, and the couple projects I've done with it, though, um, the projects failed because of my 16-year um, lapse of soldering, um, not because of the gun, um, but the iron works really well. Um, so I've been impressed with it for a $25 soldering gun, which, you know, is about the same price as stuff you can pick up at Walmart or just your, your hardware welder, store. Uh, yeah. And I like the idea that if I burn my fingers, I can blame the soldering iron now. Like you're a smart <laughs> device. You should have, you should have not burned my fingers. <laughs> um, it's also, it is also powered by either USB-C or you can, you can put a, um, uh, regular DC, uh, DC socket in yeah. there. The DC socket obviously can help bring you a higher voltage in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's the way to go. And it, it's got a nice, uh, you know, thick uh, grip to it, too, which a lot of the, the other ones don't, you know, so. Great. If you have uh, hamburger hands like I do. that's yeah. <laughs> And then it, it has the removable tips and all of that. Very nice. Awesome. I'm going to check that out. Thanks. <laughs> so, Victor, what's your pick this week? Yeah, so we, we talked a lot about uh, technology flops uh, this week, and there are two YouTube channels that I enjoy that kind of popped in my head about they're both about taking underappreciated or, you know, what people would think uh, is bad technology and then kind of putting a, a, a new perspective on it. And the first is called uh, Bad Gear. And Bad Gear is, a, is an Aust uh, Austrian uh, musician who takes, as he says, the world's most hated audio gear. And then in fun, short videos shows how he can use this gear uh, to make some actual really cool music. So I would I would uh, recommend that it's it's a very fun channel, especially if you're interested in how you know music is produced. And then Technology Connections is hmm. if you want a deeper dive into these into these technologies, everything from, you know, we mentioned Betamax uh, videotapes, uh, compact, uh, compact fluorescent light bulbs. If you want to understand like how these technologies came about, what makes them, you know, so interesting, uh, you know, from a technological perspective, I can recommend that as well. A very engaging, uh, well-written uh, channel oh, yeah. as well. So, so those those two I can recommend. He uh, did an extended series on incandescent light bulbs, like the history of light bulbs and lights or lamps in general. It was yeah. awesome deep dive. Uh, he also did one on uh, washing machine uh, dishwasher technology. Which changed the way I use my dishwasher. Like, like yeah. when you understand how the technology works, it changes your relationship and how you might use it to use it better. And so, like, I, I've uh, now I use a different kind of cheaper detergent and use less of it. And yeah, it's, it's a great channel. Technology Connections is awesome. So uh, my pick this week is something I'd been looking for for a while. And because I have a, a, a iPhone 13, my wife has an iPhone 12. They both use the MagSafe connector that Apple uh, is putting in their new phones. And uh, so you can magnetically you know, connect it to a special MagSafe charger pad and charge your phone and it won't move around and that sort of thing. And we'd had a couple different car mounts for our phones for years one was a uh, spring-loaded and you had to squeeze it and you drop the phone in it was like an x-shaped spring-loaded thing um the other car had a uh one where you had to squeeze these things on the side and open the arms up and then you let go and it only worked half the time it was a pain in the neck and uh and one of them you had to plug you still plug a cable in the other one was actually a chi charger in it which was nice but i 
I said, you know, I, I've been saying for a while, you know, now that we got the MagSafe, I want to just go more and slap the thing on there and just not worry about it. And well, finally, Anchor has come out with its Anchor PowerWave MagSafe car charging mount. Uh, and it's a nice it's a nice little thing. It it either mounts in the air vent, which I don't like. And frankly, it doesn't work on the air vents in my Honda anyway. But I, I dislike the idea of hot air blowing onto the back yeah. of my phone all winter. I mean, in the in the summer when it's air conditioning, that would be great. That's actually a good thing. But you could tell this stuff was designed by people who live in California, and uh, <laughs> because it doesn't ever get cold there. Um, so uh, so there's that. Or you could use the special 3M sticky mount for your dash, and that's what I've done in both the our Honda and our van. And uh, I did run into one little uh, uh, glitch, which is. The U it's only charges via USB C. So mm. you either need to have a USB C charger, which is another added expense, mm -hmm. uh, which I ended up having to pay and get shipped from Amazon. Uh or if you have a USB C to USB A cable of some sort, which is out which are out there. It'll charge slower. It doesn't pass as much voltage, but um, you know, it's out there. I decided to just get the USB C chargers. I have a whole rant about the the switch over from USB A to USB C ubiquity and with charging cables and stuff like that, and how what it's kind of a boondoggle in this in in this transition because huh. you never have enough USB C cables or slots or anything anywhere anymore. Um, but you also still need yeah. USB A because some things are still USB A. It's a it's kind of a pain. But you don't have to worry about if you're you don't have to like flip it around three times, right? And it's always the third time with that. Yes. USB-A cable. That yes, USB-A, it's in, so. one, turn it, two, turn it back, and then it goes in every yeah. time. It's, you have to, um, it, it, you have to get into the next dimension in order to, to get it in there. <laughs> it exists in, in, uh, in four dimensions. What's worse is the, pr the printer side of the cable. Remember those, um, is the it the B connector? the B connectors, yes. The B connectors, yeah. yeah. Those take at least six tries to get in. <laughs> And then you have those really weird ones that they put on like hard drives and stuff. Yep. The... And then there's the USB three flat ones. And then you have the uh, micro and mini, uh, yeah. which are not the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother rant. But anyway, we can the, do a whole episode on USB. Uh, you're right. On USB cables. Yeah, there's that's... your USB B <laughs> still oh. in bag. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> So uh, the Anchor PowerWave MagSafe car charging mount is my pick, and then my supplementary one is the Anchor also makes a USB-C car charger with two slots in it, which would be uh, kind of handy in case you want to let your wife charge her phone while you're driving, too. So see, <laughs> see. Anyway, that should do it for us this time. We'd love to hear what you think of our discussion, anything we had to say on uh, our tech flops or on any of our headlines or our picks of the week. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash technology or the SQPN Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or send an email to technology at sqpn.com or visit our StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And you'll find links from our discussion and our picks of the week in our show notes at sqpn.com. Remember to like each episode of Secrets of Tech on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, retweet it there leave us comments we'd love to hear from you and until next time victor lambs thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology thanks tom father joseph sun thank you as well thanks and we'll see you guys on discord <laughs> that's right and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening to the secrets of technology on starquest <laughs>